welcome to the fifth Australian Deer Podcast. These are a series of occasional podcasts aimed to give people with an interest in deer and deer management in Australia the chance to take a deeper dive into important topics. In this episode, we're joined by longtime friend and member of the Australian Deer Association, Mr. Brian Murphy. Brian is the Chief Executive Officer of the Quality Deer Management Association in the USA, and he recently joined us here in his second home of Australia to provide his unique, informed, expert advice on a range of deer management issues in Australia. In this podcast, we discuss quality deer management in Tasmania, wild food and venison diplomacy, why Australians should be concerned about chronic wasting disease, and the great opportunities there are for hunters here in Australia. Sit back and enjoy. So we're here with Brian Murphy. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Well, great to be here, Barry. Just ask if you can start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background. All right. Well, I, obviously I come from the U.S. and grew up as a young child in rural Oklahoma and Texas and just really fell in love with deer at a very young age. In fact, I was reading an article at age 12 about someone who was a wildlife biologist who worked on deer and I did what all 12-year-olds do and convened a meeting with my parents and declared that was going to be my profession in life and they looked at me with a stone silence and said, well, is that a real job and does it actually pay anything? And I'm still trying to figure that out 45 years later. But, but nonetheless, I was fortunate enough to pursue deer as a career and ended up at Texas Tech University for my undergraduate in wildlife management. And I got some great experience on a number of Texas ranches and learned a lot about quality deer management. Got to meet the father of quality deer management, in fact, at the time, Al Brothers. And then uh, later had the good fortune of attending the University of Georgia, where I received my master's and also in wildlife management, this time with a specialty in whitetail deer under two very noted deer experts, Dr. Larry Marchington and Dr. Carl Miller, both of which have come to Australia at times in the past. Following that, I had the good fortune of working for the university for a very brief period before getting afforded the opportunity to come to Tasmania. And that was in 1993. And as a young man, I very, very fortunate for my wife and I to come over and spend four wonderful years of our life working with the hunters and all the various stakeholder groups in Tassie and returned to the States in 97 and have since worked as CEO of the Quality Deer Management Association. All right, so can you tell us a little bit about QDMA, how it started and where it is today? Probably be interesting to many Australians that our origins really have a lot to do with the ADA. Our founder, Joe Hamilton, came here to Australia in the mid-80s on a couple of different occasions and was most impressed with the structure of the ADA and the real focus of the organization on doing what's right for the resource and really bringing hunters together for a common good of the deer. And you know, prior to that, Joe had a philosophy of quality deer management from Texas, Al Brothers, but didn't really know how to put an organization together. And so after he had the recipe from the ADA, he returned to the U.S. in 1988 and formed the Quality Deer Management Association. And so that organization started very meagerly as a state-based organization. There was no intent by Joe at the time to have a national organization. But the interest was simply too strong from other states and even around the world. And so we went through a couple of name changes and eventually got rid of the quality, the South Carolina distinction and just called it the Quality Deer Management Association. And that was really in its early origins when I was here in Australia. And when I got back in 97, the organization was nine years old at the time. And Joe approached me and asked if I wanted to take over as then executive director. Really, we had very little in terms of structure of an organization. We had existed for nine years 
We had about 3,000 members, but we had one part-time employee, Joe's wife, running the, the shop. And no real business plan, no real focus other than the right message. And I was fortunate enough to, to be offered the position, but it was also quite a challenge because they cornered me one night and said, if you don't take it, we're shutting it down. And it was a pretty heavy head, you know, because obviously I was very invested in the organization, had been as a Charter Life member, and knew that if I didn't take it, they were going to close the organization down. If I did take it and it failed, I would be the one who sunk the ship. So really, I didn't have much of an option but to take it and try to make it work. Backed into a corner. Yeah, not many options on the table. So I first went to my wife. Uh, we just got back from Australia at that time and wanted to start a family, buy a first home. I was 30 years old. You know, it was at that time that I needed to be a serious, you know, career focus. And she asked if that was my dream, and, and I said it was. And she said, basically, I'll give you three years to see what happens. And you know, missed paychecks and a lot of travel and no benefits and no staff. You know a little bit about that, Barry. You're staff of one. <laughs> so I called Joe and said, I'm in. And uh, he said, I'll pack up everything we have and come your way. He was in South Carolina about four hours drive. And a couple of days later, he shows up in his ute with everything we owned after nine years with room to spare and handed me a couple of boxes of magazines and some hats and a few stickers and our entire bank balance in an envelope of $142 and said, we're behind you all the way. Go get them. And so it was a very interesting, meager start, to say the least. And from there, it's grown into it. It has. We've been very fortunate. Again, I give props to ADA here because in that very fragile startup period, I guess second startup period, when I started with the organization, you know, we had $142 to our name. And, you know, I needed more than that just to have basic office equipment to even get started. And so, you know, I tried to go to the bank to borrow some money, and they laughed. And I said, who else might support the organization? And I went to both Joe Hamilton and my major professor, prior major professor at University of Georgia, and asked if he and his wife would lend us $5,000. And they said, yes. Racked my brain as to who else might. And I thought, well, maybe the ADA will, because, you know, I had good relationships with them. And so I wrote a letter that I've got a copy of to this day and asked for a loan of $5,000 to help start up the QDMA. I remember vividly writing the words, this is a high-risk venture. There is no guarantee of repayment. But all I could do is give my word that I would give it my all and try to make it happen. And fortunately, you know, we were able to pay that money back in just a, a relatively short period of time. And the organization started to grow and we were able to move it out of my home into a small office building. And we hit 10,000 members and then 25,000 and then 40,000, 50,000. We just started really hitting our stride. And today we're just under 60,000 members. I've got a team of 40 employees, including 10 biologists uh, that work for us. And we work whitetail issues all over North America. Really are proud of the great work we've done. Uh, we've seen the culture of American deer hunters change immensely in our first 30 years. We set out to change how whitetail herds were hunted and managed. In other words, creating focus to management. Today, about three quarters of American hunters follow QDM practices. And that's a pretty significant impact to a, a group of 11 plus million deer hunters in America. We had a good chat with your friend Craig Harper when he was out here about quality deer management, but QDM in a nutshell, I suppose. Well, quality deer management, the most simple definition of it is protecting a, a segment of the young bucks, as many as you can within reason, obviously allowing some to be harvested by first-time hunters and youth. So protecting those younger age males, offsetting that with an adequate, sometimes aggressive, sometimes minimal harvest of female deer, whatever's appropriate for that herd, so that you restore the sex ratio and age structure of a deer population. You also ensure that the density or number of deer is appropriate for the environment. So those deer that are remaining, again, good section age structure balance, but also good balance with the habitat. Hunters benefit, the habitat benefits, landowners have less crop damage, but hunters are more satisfied with some of the better uh, males that they can harvest. 
really is a good middle-of-the-road approach because it's not extreme trophy management and it's not hands-off no management. It's dead in the middle. It works for most deer species, for most hunters, and most of the world. So it's just really a modern approach to deer management. It makes a lot of sense. In a more Australian context, so your experience in Tasmania working with those principles there, happy landholders? Yeah, certainly when I got to Tassie in 93, it was a little background here is necessary. Back in the mid-80s, wild fallow deer were captured out of the wild and put into deer farms to start the deer farming industry. And the landholders on whose properties those were captured had to pay the Parks and Wildlife Service a small royalty for those deer. And those royalties were placed into a trust fund and promised to all the different groups in different ways. So you can imagine the deer farmers had a perspective of what that was going to be used for, Parks and Wildlife Service, the hunters, farmers and grazers, etc. They all had very different views of what that sum of money should be used for. And finally, the Minister for the Environment down there at the time in 92, John Cleary, decided to give those funds to the Tasmanian Deer Advisory Committee, which included representation of all those groups, to set out a a long-term solution to the problems. And there were many fallow deer management at the time. So we had a situation in Tasmania in the early 90s where we had abundant and growing fallow deer herds. We had aggressive harvest of young stags. The, The sex ratio was highly imbalanced, very few mature bucks in the herd. Poaching was widespread and commonplace. All the different factions, landowners, government, everybody was really at war against each other. And they were considering deregulating deer and allowing 1080 poison. So it was gonna be open slather, take all you want, however you want, night and day, poison, shoot them, whatever you want. That was the alternative if management didn't work. So the environment I was thrust into was a fairly hostile one at first, but it soon became apparent to me that quality management combined with property-based game management were really the solution and the only solution that made sense. So during the four years that I was there, we spread the quality deer management philosophy across the state, got the buy-in, if you will, from a number of landholders who would give it a go. And a number of the hunting groups that, that did, most of the hunting groups were very supportive, a few were not. In a four-year period, we got about half a million acres under quality deer management and property-based game management. And, you know, the percentage of quality stags increased 400% in the first decade. We went from where a 200-model fallow was a thumper when I arrived to where that was just a common, decent head, uh, generally a third head, a four-year-old. So we showed very quickly that you can make great strides, and the landholders got more support out of the hunters. The hunters had to become more responsible, frankly. They had to do more for the landholder with pest management, helping them with other projects on the property. So we put more responsibility on the shoulders of the hunters and they by and large accepted that responsibility and that helped balance the scale, if you will, with the landholder. So the landholder was satisfied with what he was getting out of it or she and the hunters were. So that was the whole premise and we combined the deer management piece with property-based game management, which includes all the other browsing animals and it worked beautifully. So that's something discussing yesterday is the concept that hunters have this self-interest mm-hmm. we want to take deer and we want to take reasonable deer that that self-interest can be used for greater benefit for landholders land managers here's a free resource out there people who are willing to pay to pursue it absolutely in fact even in the states the quality deer management association gets labeled as a trophy organization mistakenly perceived as just being about those older bucks which isn't the case at all but certainly a byproduct of quality management is an older buck and i tell them frankly i said i could really care less why hunters are motivated to do what they do if the outcomes are good for conservation, if they're good for habitat enhancement, if they're good for long-term health of our planet. So if antlers drive it, 
I can live with that. I mean, all you have to do is look back at prehistoric cultures around the world and all the cave drawings and things we adorned ourselves with were pictures of antlered and horned animals. <laughs> There's actually cave drawings here in northern Australia that predate European settlement. So from people who were trading with the Indonesian archipelago. Yeah. Aversity. Exactly. I really don't care. I think it's a natural ingrained fascination we have with large horned and, and antlered animals. And so let's harness that natural connection man has with these animals to achieve good conservation outcomes. And that's really as simple as it can be said, but does take a paradigm shift for a purist in Australia who just considers them introduced animals with no inherent value. That's really a head in the sand approach that will not produce positive outcomes. Well, it ignores the reality that they're here, that they're not going anywhere. That's particularly true on private land where you know, many private landholders want some deer on their property. Some obviously don't, and they don't want too many, but I found that true in Tasmania. You can label them whatever you want to label them, from pest animal to game animal and everything in between. But the reality is, if the landholders want them and the hunters want them, they're going to be there. And they're going to be there for many, many years to come. So let's, let's turn that around. Let's use it as a positive resource. Hunters are a constant resource, a growing resource in Australia that provide, I think, clear ecosystem benefits and services if harnessed. And I think it's just a matter of harnessing that hunter ability to provide those outcomes is, is really where we are. And the flip side of this value of antlers, which is an intrinsic thing in Australia where, certainly on the mainland, where there's not those quality principles, hunters go and hunt. All of the data tells us that the take is either no clear sex bias or a sex bias towards females. And the big thing is that hunters also value the meat, the food. Certainly it's the antlers that attract some people to hunting, but once you get into hunting, you find that there's so much more. We are talking with some people here in Melbourne yesterday about programs that QDMA are doing with venison diplomacy, mm-hmm. with quantifying the global harvest and with helping the hungry. I just wonder if you could run us through some of those initiatives. Yeah, well, it's been a very interesting trend in states over the last five or six years. We do surveys every year about different motivations of hunting and hunters and all this. We have great data dating back decades. And for the first time and repeatedly since the first time, uh, five or six years ago, today, hunting for food is the number one motivation for a deer hunter in America. And that's a first. It's always been like second or third you know, behind enjoyment and recreation. It never has it been trophies. Trophies is always ranked towards the bottom. But for the first time and now consistently year after year, food is number one. So we're recognizing that there is a growing interest in the food aspect of hunting. And that's parallel with this growing worldwide healthy food movement. We're seeing, you know, a number of people really move towards these naturally locally sourced organic sources of protein and or vegetables and other things. Broadly, that person is called a locavore. And so we've identified this base of people, these locavores, who may have an interest in hunting. So we established a pilot program four years ago called Field to Fork. And basically that attracts adult onset hunters, those who are generally between 17 and we've had them as old as 70 years of age, a wide range of ages, and those that are primarily food motivated. We have a program that teaches them and takes them and mentors them through the hunting process, again called Field to Fork. And it's really phenomenal because A, it, it penetrates a different demographic than normal hunter circles would. The other thing it does is it creates advocates in communities that we wouldn't normally penetrate as well. Those circles outside traditional hunting circles within communities across the country. And more encouraging is that so far over four years, multiple states, right around 80% of these adults continue hunting after the program. And that's roughly twice as high as the average youth program that we've seen. So it's about twice as effective at actually making a hunter. And it makes sense. These are self-selecting adults who say, I want to learn. We're not forcing them. So these are adults. They have 
the resources, the time, some expendable income perhaps. So they can be a hunter the next day if they choose to. Whereas if you take a 10 or 12 year old child, you know, they may have four, five, six years before they can drive themselves, have any disposable income, make any real life decisions for themselves. So if those kids, those youth don't have a support network at home, they're really challenged at becoming a hunter. And there's a lot of things that can take a young person away from hunting during those transformative 12 to 16, 17 years of age period of their lives. So we're very, very fortunate there. We also have a number of venison donation programs in the U.S., those that were part of and others were not. The amount of venison that is shared and donated in America is really quite staggering. And I was sharing some information with you and some of the MPs yesterday. Across America, it's literally in the tens of millions of meals of venison that are donated or shared. Just our organization members alone, just our small 60,000 member base, donated about 13 million meals worth of venison last year alone, 2018, 13 million meals. But think about that. And in the U.S., just white-tailed deer alone, there are a billion meals, a billion, that are provided by whitetails alone. We harvest 6 million animals a year, roughly, and you get 40 to 50 pounds of venison off the average whitetail, depending on a lot of things. So you're talking about, you know, and then each pound of venison provides roughly four meals, quarter pound portion. So you do the math and it's real close to a billion. And so our little 10, 13 million is is significant, but there's a lot of other venison provided out there. Certainly significant for people who have financial problems because it's the protein that's the expensive stuff to put on the table. Absolutely. You know, all the food banks we work with across the states uh, will tell you their number one cost and number one limitation is the protein component of, you know, foods they feed you the homeless. And carbohydrates, rice and pasta and so forth are very cheap, but providing protein, particularly red meat, is extremely expensive. And so when we show up with, you know, 500 pounds of venison mince, you know, you can't stop their smiles. They touch both earlobes at the same time because they know how important that is. The average cheap mince in the States probably runs $354 U.S. a pound, and you show up with 500 pounds, you're making a difference in their budget for the year. Yeah. It's significant. So... Uh, we want to continue to promote that because one thing that we found is that the best, and research shows this, the best way to make someone supportive of hunting who's not a hunter is for them to consume a quality venison meal. And whether you're homeless or whether you're just a friend down the neighborhood, doesn't normally consume venison. And people have had it. There's been a sorry tradition in this country of people having venison done very badly or butchered very badly. That's not uncommon, even in the States. And it hasn't been until the last decade or two that preparing venison properly and widespread knowledge of how to do that, particularly wild venison, and is different than a farmed animal, has really come to the fore. So, you know, it wasn't that many years ago that it was common for a U.S. hunter to shoot a deer, put it in the back of their pickup, and drive it around half a week, showing all their mates, <laughs> and then fry it too well done, and it doesn't taste good. So, no. you know, I can't tell you how many people that I have shared venison with who had tried it in the past were very reluctant. They said, I've had it before, and it's terrible. And I serve it properly, and they go, oh, my God, where did this come from? You know, this is not the same thing I ate before. And I said, it's not, it's different. Shooting it properly, field dressing it properly, aging, butchering, all the way to the finish line, the table, all those steps matter. And any good butcher, any good chef will tell you that it's that entire chain of custody that's important. And if you control that and know what you're doing, you can produce an outcome that's as fine as any great restaurant you'll ever eat at. Absolutely. There's an environmental cost to having overabundant deer in the landscape. We don't duck from that. Right. But equally, there's an environmental cost to producing found meat. Yeah, and and that's a great point. Our organization is part of a a global initiative, in fact, called the Wild Harvest Initiative. And we're starting in North America, but ultimately it will be a global project about five years into it. And the premise of it is to document the total biomass of wild protein that 
humans consume. And I'm talking about things that are hunted, fish that are caught, both fresh and uh, saltwater species. So we're talking about all the naturally provided fish, fowl, game of all kinds that, that are consumed globally. To quantify that, because our current estimates are roughly half of the world's protein is wild sourced, which is pretty incredible. And if you think about the amount of land and water resources and nutrients and affluent management and things that would be required to double our current livestock production to meet our current protein needs, let alone future protein needs, really demonstrates how important hunting can be to global food security and global health. So we're really excited about this project and what it's going to reveal and how it will give us some compelling data, I think, that will further justify hunting in a global context but also show the positive benefits of sustainable source protein like wild venison. Which leads us to, certainly from a venison perspective, in the US at the moment you're dealing with probably the biggest challenge we've ever seen to that fundamental idea that we hunt stuff and eat it. We are, we're no doubt about it. Uh, facing the biggest challenge since our deer were nearly completely extirpated across all of North America at the beginning of the 20th century, and that's a disease called chronic wasting disease and some of you may be familiar with it, and perhaps many not, but you all would be at least vaguely familiar with a cousin of this disease called mad cow disease, or BSE, bovine spongiform encephalopathy. And so over the last uh, you know, 50 years in the States, we've identified and begin tracking a disease that's slowly spreading through all of our cervid populations, so the deer family, all of the North American deer family, ranging from our deer species to elk, moose, caribou, etc., all are susceptible. Currently, this disease has made its way into 26 of our states and three Canadian provinces. And it's a real concern because chronic wasting disease, or CWD, is an always fatal brain disease of deer. So when they get it, 100% will die. The concern beyond that is that at some point there may be some human health concerns of this disease. Right now, there is no evidence that humans can be harmed by consuming CWD-infected deer. However, we know that, again, a very close cousin of CWD is mad cow. Mad cow killed about 230 Europeans that we know about and resulted in 4 million cattle being round up and burned and areas quarantined and the UK being banned from uh, the sale of beef in the European Union for a decade. I mean, catastrophic problems associated with that disease. Again, we don't know of any human health concerns now, but there is some evidence yet to be peer-reviewed and published out of Canada that would suggest it's possible. There is some published research in transgenic mice that suggests it's possible. But again, right now, we don't have any clear evidence. But CWD is unique in that it is the disease agent is not a living thing. It's not a virus. It's not a bacterium. It's a protein. And that's what makes it so challenging. And what happens is we all have prions in our body. Deer do as well. They're just proteins. We have normal proteins, we hope, in our bodies. And what happens is when this abnormal protein gets introduced into a deer, it causes otherwise normal proteins to misshape and unfold back on themselves in an abnormal way. And these abnormal proteins accumulate in the central nervous system, the spinal material, the brain, and slowly eat holes in the central nervous system tissue. So basically if you picture Swiss cheese, that's what your brain eventually looks like, you know, if you have this disease as a deer or what have you. There is a human form of this disease. And that's why we're concerned about it. That's what mad cow caused in humans. It's called Crutchfield-Jakob disease, or CJD. And about one in a million Americans get spontaneous CJD for some reason we don't know and die from it. 
So obviously we're looking for patterns because there are literally tens of thousands of infected whitetails that are consumed annually in our country currently. So we're looking for patterns of disease. We haven't found it yet. Hopefully we never do. Luckily there is another cousin of these two diseases, mad cow and CWD, that's in sheep. And the sheep version is called scrapey. And scrapey's been known about for perhaps three or four hundred years, maybe longer. And there's yet to be a human that we know of that's ever died from eating infected sheep. So we hope that the deer version is that one. Problem is, we still don't know as much as we should about CWD. We don't have a live animal test. We can't test an animal alive effectively and rapidly know whether it's infected or not. There's no vaccine, there's no cure yet. It spreads through body fluids, urine, saliva, but it also can be spread through a contaminated environment. We know it's in soils, it can be uptaken in plant tissue, so there's a whole lot of ways this thing can move. But the two biggest ways it's moving in our country is through the movement of live deer and elk, either by the captive farming industry or by our state wildlife agencies, and by moving infected carcasses by hunters. So the hunter will go to an area that has CWD, harvest an animal there, and even though there's regulations that prevent them from taking anything but deboned meat out, many don't, either don't know about it or don't adhere to that, so they'll drive to their state of residence, which may not be CWD positive, debone that animal, and throw the carcass out on the landscape, potentially creating a source of infection in the environment. So a lot of problems with this thing. And yeah, that fundamental risk in the we were talking the other day and I was saying, oh, I don't know how I'd go if there was this CWD positive meat, but I certainly wouldn't feed it to my six-year-old son. Right, and, you know, I've had the, I don't know if it's good fortune or not, but uh, the uh, opportunity to be involved with this disease for 20 years and I watched it spread. I watched the impact on hunters, watched the financial impact on state wildlife agencies. I was just in, at our nation's capital in Washington, D.C., meeting with senators just two weeks ago trying to get upwards of $30 million for funding for research and surveillance. We have a big road ahead of us. It's taking great resources from our state agencies that would otherwise be used for hunters or anglers. That's a concern for us all. But long term, you know, if we don't stop the spread of this thing, it has the potential to change deer hunting as we know it. It takes a long time for this disease to manifest in a sick-looking deer. So a lot of hunters will harvest deer that look perfectly normal. Most, in fact, the vast majority of positive animals look very healthy, but they're often not. And so, you know, the eyeball test doesn't do it. You can't freeze the disease agent out unless you can cook your venison to about 1,750 degrees Fahrenheit, which is a little bit too well done for me because it's charcoal dust at that point. You can't cook it out. So this is not an easy one to deal with. And there's no reason for hunters here in Australia and New Zealand to be complacent about this and think that it's a Northern Hemisphere problem? Not at all. It's already been found in Japan and Norway, among two other countries. It's been found in the service genus, which is red deer. It's our elk, but your red deer, your Sika, it's been found in Sika deer. No reason it wouldn't jump to Samba readily or Rusa. You know, we don't know about fallow yet, but I hear tell there's some evidence that fallow would be susceptible as well. So there's really no reason to believe that any of the Australian deer species would be immune to it. We're not aware of a single member of the deer family on the planet that is at this point. So there's at least a, I would say, low to moderate probability that it will get to Australia at some point in some way, and that would be a very problematic thing. Something we need to keep a proactive watching brief on. Yes. It's not a panic at this stage of the game. We're not panicking in the States, by and large. We're very concerned. You know, I'm hopeful as a, as a scientist, as a biologist, I'm hopeful that science can help solve this thing. That's what you 
very smart people put on this earth today. Yeah, and you know we've done some amazing things with technology and science. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that that will help us here. There's a lot of very very smart people working on this globally, and you know a lot of new technologies coming to the fore that this should help us. But uh, right now, our best uh, approach is one of caution and one of great resistance to letting it continue to spread. I personally do not believe that every nook and cranny of America must have this disease, that we can keep it out of some areas with due diligence. And so even though it's in 26 states, it's not often in, in a very large portion of a given state. So right now it's in somewhere around 9 to 11% of counties in America that have deer in them. So still about 90% of American hunters are hunting, even though 50% of states have it in some level, only about 10% of counties do. So still 90% of hunters are hunting in areas that we not aware of any disease present. So, so be alert, not alarmed. Is... Yeah, be alert, be cautious. In our country, if, if a hunter knows of someone moving deer illegally, translocating them, that proper permits and authority, you know, I hate to say you dob them in. You know, this is something about protecting the resource for the greater good. And if you harvest an animal in a CWD zone, if you're an Australian hunter and you go to America and you hunt where deer or elk uh, are known CWD positive, and a lot of the western U.S., a lot of Australians hunt, is CWD positive. Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, you know, those are CWD states. If you go over there, don't be complacent and just bring back your muddy boots and things that you shouldn't. Make sure you don't, because come back and you might be bringing it back with you. Sobering stuff. To pivot back to a bit of naval gazing, I suppose. Mm -hmm. About five years ago, you came out here and addressed ADA's national conference. Hit us with a challenge that we sort of adopted as a mantra, which was be relevant or die. We've made a number of changes. A lot of them were your recommendations since that last visit. We've got a long way to go. Um, what advice would you have for organisations like ours? Well, the first thing I want to do is commend you because... You know, I've had the good fortune of working with a lot of organizations over the years and running one myself, and it's always hard to change, particularly when you have a proud history, which ADA does, and it does a number of things incredibly well. But what you did 10 or 20 years ago does not mean you're going to be relevant the next 10 or 20. And we've had the same challenges in our organization, so it's very common. But, you know, I challenged ADA to, to look to the future more and past a little bit less. Look at the changing demographics and trends in Australia that are right in front of you. And you guys did that in spades. And as an outsider watching, I've been incredibly proud of the changes ADA has made and knowing that many of them are tough. They're not easy things. You know, you've revamped everything from policy and procedure to your publication to how you deal with your branches. I mean, you've had widespread change, and I understand there's some additional changes still in the works. Those are necessary. They can hurt. They can be difficult. I commend you for them. Oh, thanks. That sort of brings us to an end of what we had to discuss. Was there anything else you thought you'd like to bring up or you thought was relevant? No, I just think it's time for Australian hunters to recognize that while there are challenges, and the biggest challenge is the perception of deer as a pest animal, particularly by government and by others, but you're in a very fortunate situation at the moment in that you've got growing hunter numbers. Ours are declining rapidly. We've kind of hit our peak and we're going off the other end now. You've got a growing deer resource, growing hunter numbers, a younger demographic. The challenge will be if those younger generation of hunters will accept the challenge, will they step up and make ADA and hunting relevant for the future and not just say, oh, somebody else will do it, mate. No worries. No, it's time for a new generation of hunters to lead. 
and if they accept that challenge and step up and adopt wise management practices and stay the course, it's a tough battle. And it will be a battle for years to come with government, with the perception of deer in Australia. But I'm convinced that there is a common ground and a place where that can be successful for everybody. So that would be my challenge is to the young ones. Good. Hopefully they're listening and taking it on board. <laughs> so the rest of the trip you're off to your second home in Tasmania. Yep, going to leave Melbourne here today and head to Tassie for several days of meetings and game management forums and celebrations of ADA's 50th anniversary and then off to New South Wales. Got another game forum there in Mullingong and then a couple of days in Sydney and meet with some of the members of parliament there and then back to the States to my real job and back to work. Hey, thanks for coming to Australia and helping us with these conversations, particularly with our lawmakers. It's good to get that outside international perspective and thanks for talking to us today, Brian. My pleasure.